Hey, hi, hello. This is RB, your last bite maitre d'. Today's episode is Serving the Last Bite. This is our first official episode for our new podcast adventure. Today we'll be talking about that weird thing Midwesterners do when there's one slice of pizza left in the box. We'll also be talking about the work of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity, a nostalgic conversation about our relationships with the Midwest region. And we'll be talking about the intentions behind this podcast and give a preview of what's to come. So welcome to Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. Hi, I'm Justin Drinky. I am the executive director of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. I've been a resident of the Midwest for 30 years. Uh, and we'll talk about that magic number 30 in the future. Uh, but I, I have grown up all over the Midwest, experienced both urban and rural and suburban settings. So it's been a, a fascinating experience growing up, living within the Midwest and observing Midwest culture and growing into my queerness within that Midwest culture. Mm -hmm. So especially when I've had opportunities to temporarily leave the Midwest, like on study abroad or vacations and like experience queerness in other pockets of the world. Mm -hmm. And then to come back really is illuminating, I think, uh, how the, the Midwest nice culture impacts queer identity that's super real and we'll yep definitely going to talk about midwest nice and if that's if that's um as real as it wants to think it is uh later um i have only ever lived full-time in the midwest as well for a whole 30 years as well um which is a terrifying thought but here we are (sighs) um born and raised in st louis and then um, bopped over to Kansas City, Missouri for college because it was the furthest I could get away from home uh, while still paying in-state tuition. Um, and then got duped into ending up in Lawrence, Kansas for grad school. And then decided that the lower part of the Midwest was not serving me. And so ended up in Minnesota, where I currently am, specifically northern uh, Minnesota, Um, and all of those experiences have been drastically different. Um, the, obviously St. Louis and Kansas city, more urban, um, spaces. Lawrence is a college town, which is very different in my opinion than like a small town. Um, even when we talk about rurality and like 
what does it mean to be in a small town versus a college town? Because who is centered or catered to in those spaces? So not knowing and having never lived in a small town prior to now, I've been in Duluth for five years. Um, small town for this city slicker is um, an experience that has definitely made me have to rethink a lot of things about like queerness and access and resources, um, how information is disseminated and like what the norms are, like um, what is expected of like queer folks in those spaces. Um, what does it mean to get queer folks together in space? Because the commonality can't just strictly be, oh, we're all trans. So we're like, we're all gonna get along just fine, which is not real. But when you're in a more like small town type space, um, it impacts how you can get together with folks who also have shared interests. Um, and so that's been um, a very interesting trajectory coming from St. Louis, Kansas City, Kansas, and then Minnesota. Um, so knowing that we both have uh, a pretty expansive and combined 60 years of experience, um, thinking about queerness specifically in um, the context of the Midwest region. Um, <laughs> that I think takes us into um, wanting to talk about the concept behind the name of the podcast, where it even came from and, and why, um, why it's important for us to be specifically talking about queer and trans work um, in the Midwest under the namesake of Take the Last Bite. So we were both together um, when we uh, collectively acknowledged um, what, what happens when a group of Midwest folks get together for a meal. And so do you remember what, what, where were we? Because um, it was in your, your neck of the woods. Was that when we were at Zuby's? The pizza place. Yeah, okay, yep. right. So... So you sit a, a group of queer Midwesterners down to a table, split a couple pizzas. And some appetizers. And, oh yeah, some appetizers, some, <laughs> some buffalo cauliflower dip, super yes. yummy, right? Anything with buffalo sauce, mm, yes. chef's kiss. Uh, so, so we're sitting at this table with, I don't know, five or six Midwest queers and have some appetizers, have some pizza. And then like, we're getting to the end of the meal and we just look down at the table and on every single plate, there's one slice of pizza left of this one. There's one slice left of this pizza. And there's like a smidge of buffalo cauliflower dip left, right? And it's just like a, an acknowledgement, right? I, I think RB, you and I just like looked at each other in the <laughs> eyes and was like, this is the most Midwest, right? <laughs> and and so, and I think that anybody who has spent some time in the Midwest might have had a, a similar experience where out of politeness, I guess, yeah. uh, one does not take the last bite of food, right? And I don't know where that originated, right? Nope. But like, it's a thing that I just have all of these vivid memories of, whether it's, you know, family reunion potlucks or whatever, you know, picnic at the lake, you know, whatever the, whatever the idyllic Midwest situation is, right? All of those experiences are tied together by looking at the pizza tray 
or the casserole dish. And there being <laughs> one bite remaining, the last bite, but like, it's not even enough to call a bite, right? Like there's that last pizza pizza. You still want some pizza. So you cut it in half. Mm-hmm. And then the next person comes along and they're <laughs> like, Ooh, I would like some more pizza, but I don't want to take the last of it. I don't want to be rude. So they take more, like they take a smidge of that. And so by the time you get down to it, there's like a quarter of the crust, but you didn't take the last of the pizza. Nope. And I don't, and maybe that's not strictly a Midwestism, but it certainly is common among like folks getting together at all of the locations in which you described. Um, And I don't know why we do that, right? Like there is a whole Facebook group dedicated to people posting pictures of like, uh, business meetings, like like get-togethers of any variety, and folks are like, "How? how why is this happening? Please take the last piece of this." Because it also means you're not the person throwing away the container, which is mm. possibly also related to labor and work. But we'll um, set that aside for now. It's probably related, though. Um, and yeah, I remember just sitting at that table. We were sitting outside once upon a time when it was acceptable to sit outside without having to sit outside um, (laughs) pre-pandemic and just being like, y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. Um, And so to to like, right, like how that applies to what we want to do with this podcast is, is that that kind of idea that you can't take the last bite. It's either impolite or it's rude, or you're trying to give courtesy to other folks in the space to also um, have have a bite of whatever is being taken. Um, So you slice it down to this tiny mouse-sized crumb, thinking that you're doing right by all these other people, right? Just so just, it is this taboo, ominous thing, apparently, um, to take the last bite. And so our podcast, Take the Last Bite, is inviting folks and encouraging folks to talk about the things no one wants to talk about, um, to explore things that would otherwise be um, continued to be covered up or um, uh, not really engaged with, right? Like, um, that is part of the Midwest culture is just not being the person who says the thing um, or just accepting things as they are or not knowing how to address them, right? Avoiding conflict um, mm-hmm. is a very Midwest um, convention. And we are here ideally to turn that table over a little bit um, and take the last bite, serve the last bite and invite others to do the same. So that's our quirky play um, on something that is very, uh, very ubiquitous and known um, by Midwesterners. I'm sure everybody is now realizing they've been that person at this point in the conversation. Um, (laughs) And also thinking about other types of spaces and conversations where other things besides pieces of food are not being touched or considered Mm. or acknowledged. um, And that that flavors the work that I think is done in what we consider um, the Midwest region um, and impacts how we do the work that we're doing with the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. I, I, I just, am, I'm, I'm just continued to continuing to be stuck on what happens when you walk into the break room at work and you take the last donut. You don't pretend to be nice, right? What, what happens when you take the full last donut and you don't cut it in half because you want that last donut. And so you are going to take it, right? 
And when you do that in the Midwest, ooh, mm-hmm. ooh. Well, and I, I have frequently been that person because I, I tend to break that convention as much as possible. But um, as a fat, queer, and trans person, there's also a layer of optics that I think about when like I'm consuming food in shared spaces, especially in my job place or around like conventionally attractive people um, or just like in general, right? Like the fat phobia inherent in spaces right like means that I am calculating and thinking certain things about my relationship with food in front of other people because it's related to how I'm perceived in space and received in space and I think um, there's something to be said about if you do take the last bite, who you are as a person is always go is also going to um, dictate how it is perceived, the level of rudeness or acceptability if you if you make that move. And obviously we are continuing the metaphor here to say, depending on who you are along racialized, gendered, classed, um, and sized lines is going to impact the level of appropriateness or acceptability if you're the loud person in the room or the person making a particular comment um, or um, trying to unveil anything that's not vibing quite right in an organizing space or a job place or a family space or a friend, just any of the places where you are with people. Um, And that is definitely another barrier and something that flavors doing organizing in general. But I think that there's a specificity to it in the Midwest, at least from our vantage point, right? Like that is our point of reference. So, right. So I, and, and even relating to that, right. I think about multiple conversations around the dinner, dinner table with family, where it's explicitly said, you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about race. And Mm -hmm. by not talking about those things, you lose the opportunity to expose the flaws in the system. And and so every generation that that happens with perpetuates these systems Mm -hmm. and conditions the next generation and the next generation and Mm -hmm. the next generation to uphold these systems. Because they they become social norms, right? It was a group of us, you know, folks at a dinner table who were doing presumably more radical work than, you know, your average arrangement of people, but we still fell into Midwest conventions around eating food. And I think it, 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 again, it creates social norms about uh, how you exist in shared space, but then also how you communicate, Right. Like, again, we'll we'll talk more about this Midwest nice, um, both in this space and in future space, but um, directness and how you communicate in space, you know, in the Midwest in particular um, means something. Right. It means um, things to folks in that space who expect a certain um, thing around professionalism and like what is appropriate in space um and you know it it creates these social norms around how we talk to each other how we're allowed to be in space who we're allowed to be in those spaces um and then 
kind of pushes us into creating our own spaces, which is kind of an origin story that is true to uh, us founding the Institute, right? There was a need, there was a restlessness, there was a desire, there was a push, and there was a text message um, (laughs) asking, do you want to do this wild thing with me um, to found this organization around um, um, uh, an existing conference with quite a legacy to make sure that the integrity of that was continued. So I don't know if this is a, a good segue into kind of talking about where we're coming from um, as representatives of this organization and how this podcast is another um, avenue for us to talk about, A, the amazing and necessary work being done in the Midwest region um, and kind of our emerging work with with the Institute. Yeah, I, I think this is a great time to talk about that. Let's take a quick break and come back. You're listening to Take the Last Bite, a podcast produced by the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute re-envisions an educational climate that centers the needs and experiences of systemically disadvantaged students and affirms and encourages sexuality and gender diversity. Through this podcast and other programs, the Institute provides community and connection to the next generation of leaders in the movement for our collective liberation. Building a sense of community plays a critical role in improving mental health outcomes for queer and trans youth. We are dedicated to furthering queer success in the Midwest. Our work is made possible through the generous financial support of grassroots donors. Your donation helps provide space for queer and trans students to experience the joy of being in community and helps remove barriers to accessing queer and trans-centered spaces. To learn more and make a contribution today, visit sgdinstitute.org forward slash giving. So yeah, let's tuck into that that origin story and mm-hmm. explain a little bit more about who we are and mm-hmm. maybe what has led us to launching Take the Last Bite. So um, for folks who may not be familiar with the work that that we are doing or have done, um, the the Institute, as we will often refer to it as, because mm-hmm. uh, saying Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity takes up a lot of seconds and is <laughs> uh, a bit of a mouthful. Uh, so often throughout this podcast, you'll hear the Institute, and that's just the the short way of referring to the full organization name. So the, the Institute is born out of the now Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, right? And so it's gone, the, the, the conference, which we refer to as Mumble Tech or Mumble Talk, uh, depending on which part of the region you're from, yeah. uh, maybe that's a future episode, um, <laughs> is, uh, so, so that conference, uh, we are going into year 29, mm-hmm. um, this, this coming October, Um, We are recording this in 2021. So uh, October of 2021 is the uh, 29th annual conference. And so that conference has undergone a couple of name changes, but has always been about bringing together queer and trans college students and college student-aged youth from across the Midwest. And... There was a there was an interview that was done with one of the organizers of the very of the second conference, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the the conference mumble tech was was described as a queer oasis mm-hmm. in the desert of the Midwest. And so if we think back to the context in in which the conference started, it was very much at a time where there was an emerging gay and lesbian liberation movement. And I I use those words intentionally because it was centering Mm -hmm. predominantly white, gay and lesbians. And that, that movement was generally focused on the East and West Coast. Now we can tuck into the history of Black trans organizers and activists that even made that that movement possible, right? And I'm sure at some point we'll tuck into that history, right? But in the context of the Midwest in the early 90s, the money was being used to advance the interests of white gays and lesbians. And, And the Midwest was being ignored. And so the some some college students in the region took it among themselves and uh, created this gathering of of queer and trans students that the longevity of this event speaks to the need for that community building. Yeah, I think even today we still see that the Midwest is often overlooked in like national conversation. We still see that the saturation or the attention is often on our coastal counterparts, East, West coast. Um, I think the South has often also been overlooked in conversation. The work in the South um, is not regarded in, in the emerging work um, around gender justice and, um, sexual liberation. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be said about why, right? I think there's a lot of assumptions that the Midwest and the South, but I can only really speak to the Midwest is that it's, it's a flyover, you know, space that there's a lot of red states and growing, growingly more red (laughs) counties um, in our, in our region. And um, I think that that speaks to in some ways why we've been disregarded historically, but that we still have these college campuses who are like, well, that's bogus. And we're going to uplift and actually acknowledge that there is lots of work happening here, even if not, it's not going to reach this like national platform or this kind of national recognition because we know better because we are here. Um, and so I think the, the role of the conference up to this point has definitely been continuing to prove that the conversations, the work, the push, the movement is absolutely happening in the Midwest. Um, and by way of the Institute, we're also trying to like harness that energy, uplift the folks who've been doing the work that might not be getting that recognition and to talk about the specific and unique uh, needs of folks in the Midwest Um, related to a whole lot of social movements um, that we often get left out of. So as far as our relationship, right, like you and I came into each other's ecosystem by way of planning 
um, a conference, you in 2013 and me in 2014, um, as undergraduate students doing an unbelievable amount of uncompensated labor at our respective institutions. <laughs> with, with incredible personal risk, right? Uh-huh. I still cannot believe that we <laughs> ran a 2,000-person conference mm-hmm. essentially out of our own pockets, right? The, the, the liability and financial risk that we were taking on as undergraduate students was yes. unbelievable, Yes. And that's why we connected to have this conversation about forming the Institute. Yes. Because our conferences predate the existence of the Institute and the risk and liability and inconsistency really um, necessitated trying to figure out how do we stabilize um, this work of the conference and make sure that they can continue without putting undergraduate students in this weird place of signing checks for large honorariums to host uh, a conference on campus. Yeah, so, you know, after many versions of conversation and, and many, many long meetings, mm-hmm. uh, the the Institute was formed. Ta-da. So, so the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity exists uh, to connect, educate, and empower queer and trans youth and college students across the Midwest, but also nationally, but with mm-hmm. a focus on the Midwest. And, and what that looks like is, is providing support to students who are actively planning Mumble Tech mm-hmm. each year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that support you know, looks different a little bit every single year, but uh, primarily means um, providing uh, a liability shield, providing tools and resources uh, to not have to reinvent the wheel every year that that this conference is being planned. Um, and very early on, the conversation was, what more can we do as the Institute? Mm-hmm. There's this there's this fantastic three day conference that is a gathering of of you know past couple of years we're seeing you know twelve hundred up to two thousand queer and trans students coming together um, pre pandemic and <laughs> this this gathering of people is fantastic and the connection that happens the empowerment that happens is is life changing and how do we take that idea and expand it beyond just the three day event. Uh, and so that's what we are are looking at and working on as the Institute as well is not only continuing to support the amazing student activists who are planning Mumble Tech each year, but creating additional opportunities to build relationships, to share resources uh, and affect change across the region. Yeah, I'll always remember um, when I was in graduate school, I was in a position where I was advising like the LGBTQ student group um, and was then tasked with coordinating those students to go to the 2015 conference in um, normal Illinois, right? And um, when we came back, we intentionally did like a debriefing to be like, how are you feeling? What was this experience like, et cetera. And I had one student who was like, why can't every like day be mumble tech? 
And I was like, that's a really great question. Cause like, that should not be, um, that should not be a wish that should be a reality. Right. Like, and what I interpreted out of that, that students ask of, you know, why can't every day be mumble tech is why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations and learning and sharing um, skills and knowledge and experience and having all of this possibility and opportunity more than three days a year, which also goes along with, what you just said about like what else can we do to really a put like midwest queer and trans movement work on a map that it is often left off of um to have us be you know viewed as folks who know what we're talking about when we talk about queer and trans liberation and justice um and to really expand the the national conversation around what are the needs right because what is going on in you know, on the coasts might, might thematically, right. There might be some themes that are relevant and that we can cross talk, but there's things that are not the same. And, you know, I think we kind of self-assigned ourselves to um, do that necessary work and uplift folks who are doing it um, and um, trying really hard to make more than three days a year feel like that. Cause it's a feeling you cannot, really even we can try in the next you know a couple minutes here to like explain what that feeling is but until you've been there you know I think folks underestimate like the experience of knowing that like the entire building that you're in or the hotel lobby that you're in like is truly a hundred percent queer and trans folks and or folks that truly support us um and that that should not be a rarity or something that like students or anybody has to like seek out or pay to go to, um, you know, that it should be something that like is readily available um, to all people who desire that type of community and that type of space. Cause the freedom of like being able to exist as you are in a mumble tech setting um, is just un unparalleled. Like it's just not, you just, it's just incomparable. It, it, it really is right. It, the, just the the liberating feeling that comes along with it, it existing in a place where it's you know it like being queer is embraced as opposed to just tolerated right and i'm not i'm not going to pretend that the conference that we that we work on is the only place that that exists right there are other spaces where you know there are queer people gathering right I, I think about, right, so my partner and I go to a queer campground, right? And they're, you know, being in that space with other queer people is incredible. And also, there's something about mumble tech specifically where queer people are coming together for the purpose of peer-to-peer education, uh, tactic building and tactic sharing and organizing and, and having conversations about how we move forward in the world as a community that is truly inspiring and liberating. Well, and I think it has a lot to do with the, like, the age group, right? Like, we're generally, you know, calling in college-aged folks into this space and the folks who support them, right? Because, like, there, there's a level of like doe-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? Like just being kind of queerlings coming into the space. Cause I think one of the pieces of feedback we regularly get, um, and this was true, 
this is true for a lot of folks on our team who've experienced the conference um, as students in prior years, is that like, we hear folks say, this is the first time I've been in a room with people with a certain shared experience as I. And that, that is both like really heartbreaking and also really rewarding to know that like that, that, that type of space um, was something that could be achieved in this conference setting. And what does that mean for someone to be able to show up to this space by way of either like their student group sponsoring them to go or their like, you know, campus advisor, like setting them up to go to know that like, I know what that feels like. And now I want more because I think it then motivates folks to figure out what it means to achieve a version of that again, to create that type of space for others and pay it forward. Because if you've never experienced that before, in any setting, right, the conference might not be that only place, but if you've never been in space where you can explore and ideate and think about what does it mean to be a trans person? What does it mean to be a polyamorous person, right? Like you are so kind of caught in your own head at a certain time in your life, you know, if we're thinking about 18 to 25 year olds where like developmentally, there's a lot of like scary things happening. There's a lot of new things happening. Like it's a very stressful and also very generative age to be um, just because like the sky's the limit, right? Be whoever you want to be. But sometimes it's nice to be in space where you have sounding bar, sounding board to like hear from other people, how they came into an understanding of that identity for them or that experience for them or how they're thinking about something differently. Cause I, I would relate that to what I was talking about a bit ago, just like being in a smaller town now is that I, I experience folks who kind of have this very one size fits all interpretation of what being trans means as though there's like this Amazon wish list that you just have to like check through and that's the only way to be trans. And so I worry, you know, about how like that limits folks's um, uh, self-exploration to say, well, I can be trans in this way because if they don't see it modeled, how are they going to know that that's an option? And so I think Mumble Tech is one of those spaces um, that offers that. And I think like for us, that is the life force that ballooned into why we're doing what we're doing with the Institute and the folks on our team have all experienced the conference in a, in their own respective way and could probably speak to some of the same things that we're talking about, but as, you know, little undergrads in, you know, 2013, 2014, which I think was our graduation years. Did you graduate in 2012 or 13? Uh, 12. Yeah. So right before your conference and my senior year last semester was the same semester as my conference. How I graduated is uh, quite a big question mark. Um, that was a like I wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing or know half the things that I know without the conference experience. And yeah. also it was a very significant experience for me as like a not entirely out to the whole world young person in college planning this whole ass conference for queer and trans people. Right, and just the sheer number of possibility models that exist in that space, right? When you're bringing together, you know, up to 2000 queer and trans people uh, just to exist in the same space and have conversations, the, the opportunities that that creates for people to explore their own identities by just chatting with other people and seeing like, oh, what are you doing? And like, what's what's going on over here? And, you know, the, the thing about being queer is that 
you don't. <laughs> the th- right, well, you the know, thing I, is, <laughs> the thing about being queer, right, is that like generally, you do not have family members with that same identity. Sure. Right, and so you don't grow up learning about yourself from your family. That learning generally happens later when you're connecting maybe in college, maybe if you're lucky in high school with with other queer and trans people, right? Now, I, I, I do think that, that that experience might be different now with the, with the internet, you know, and all of the things that are available there. But like, I grew up in, in a time where like, you were lucky if you had a Nokia cell phone, right? <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. I didn't get a cell phone until I was 17, right? So there was no internet access to be able to explore who I was. Like the first time I had an opportunity to really explore my queerness was in college at Mumble Tech, right? So, I, you know, it, it might be a little bit different now, um, but I do think there is still something really important about connecting with other queer and trans folks in person yes, and just exploring identity. And I, I envision that we'll definitely um, talk more about the conference um, in future conversations, but like the, the part to impress here, right? Is that like without the conference and the legacy of that conference, like the Institute would not exist. Um, our motivations behind doing the Institute work would be you know, lax, um, and we would have never come into each other's lives, really. So, like, that's its own thing. <laughs> Which would have been very, very sad. Devastating. Um, and that, and our team has pretty much come together by way of having some kind of proximity or relationship to the conference. We have a lot of folks on our team who either planned a conference in the past or um, were around or attended when um, it came through at their respective universities, um, and that. Uh, is definitely like the bonding agent, I think, for both like the work of the Institute and guide, you know, guiding us through why we're doing the work that we're doing. Um, and then just our respective relationships because of how we all kind of came into each other's ecosystems, having planned a conference um, before the Institute existed and trying to like figure out how do you pass on knowledge? How do you pass on like support um, for how to do the upcoming conference? Cause we were just passing along this baton and rotating, you know, conference years around the region. Cause yours was in East Lansing, Michigan, Lansing, Michigan, East, in well, Michigan. <laughs> It was technically in Lansing, Michigan, even though the <laughs> university is in East Lansing. Yes. So Lansing, Michigan, then to Kansas City, Missouri, then to normal Illinois, so on and so forth. So. Right. And we were relying on students to pass mm-hmm. that baton forward. And mm-hmm. when that didn't happen, things went bad. Yes. And so that was another part of our motivation for forming the Institute was to formalize that process of knowledge sharing and Mm -hmm. like institutional memory. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something to be said about learning from the past. And I don't know that we do that enough Mm -hmm. in a lot of places, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's, there's value in forward thinking and coming up with new ideas, but that should also be informed by what has already happened and what has already been tried. Mm So, so that's a lot of what motivates the work that we're doing as the Institute is, is about taking the historical context and using that to inform new ideas for 
advancing the, you know, advancing knowledge of sexuality and gender Mm -hmm. uh, and creating climates that are embracing and affirming of queer and Mm -hmm. trans students. Yes, because what I'm thinking about now too, right, is that through this process of hosting the conference at different institutions or through different institutions, different universities, students planning this conference, right, we've learned a lot um, in retrospect about the different ways that campuses support LGBTQ students by hosting this conference or in the ways that they don't support um, LGBTQ students either hosting this conference or in general. You know, um, I think that we take for granted college campuses that have either LGBTQ support staff um, or centers. Um, and even when those exist on college campuses, that doesn't mean that the institution is necessarily all in on supporting um, all of the all of the various needs for LGBTQ college students. Um, and so I think that the ways in which the conference has been received or supported on each campus over the years has also been very illuminating about the different experiences that students can have just based on where they choose to go to college, right? Your experience planning your conference and mine are pretty starkly different. Um, I felt like I had quite a significant amount of institutional support with the caveat that it had to be worked for. There wasn't um, in many ways this pre-existing Um, relationship with some of the amazing campus partners we ended up soliciting through doing the work of planning the conference, but we got it and it transcended past our conference here. You did not have that experience. No, no, not at all. You know, even, even existing on a campus where there were, I think at the time, 14 or 15 different student organizations, registered student organizations, specifically for LGBT college students, mm-hmm. um, the the level of university support for planning the conference specifically was not necessarily there. There were there were a few people who were ready yeah. to be our advocates and champions, uh, but you know, I, and I I think that part of it may have been the the fear about liability, right? Sure. I mean, obviously, it was a big undertaking. There's a big financial stake in that and you know we were very fortunate that like yeah we everything worked out great but like I didn't actually know what I was doing as like (laughs) a 21 year old college student trying to plan an event with a hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget right like you don't actually know what you're doing and so that's what we're you know what we've tried to to course correct a little bit is is providing those tools and resources but but you're you're absolutely right like it has been incredibly illuminating uh, working with various universities each year, mm-hmm. the, the differences that exist on campuses. Yes. Um, and, and that being said, right, like our team, not everybody in our team has a higher ed background. There's a lot of mm-hmm. higher ed focus on our team. Um, but as we work through this podcast, you like we will be highlighting various voices from our team, as well as people from our ecosystems that have all sorts of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, f- working in a financial institution, working in local government, working mm-hmm. on an urban farm. Uh, we've got people with marketing and communications backgrounds, uh, software development and information technology. What else? There's all sorts of things. Yeah, we've got quite a thrush um, group 
with different experiences. And I, I think what, what positions us then is that even though not everybody has a higher education background, we have a vantage point as folks who kind of exist outside of university um, uh, network, right? That we can name some of the things and the limitations at universities that are creating barriers for LGBT college students. And we've learned a lot of that by way of experience as folks who've gone to universities in the Midwest um, is that like we we learned by way of planning this conference as students about some of the politic um, involved at college campuses, which maybe wasn't news, but we learned at a certain level, like what does it mean to ask for things? What does it mean to expect certain support? Is it mm. conditional or is it readily available? Where is the money going? Is the money got contingencies on it, right? Like we're learning all these, all of these things. And I, I'd like to believe that as we you know, do the work by way of the Institute, um, that that gives us kind of this vantage point to be um, voices kind of on the periphery of higher education to be able to say, this is what we've experienced. This is what we're hearing. This is what we're seeing. This is what we know um, to be able to continue to push in the, push on these ways in which like universities are not readily willing to support LGBT college students. Cause it's, it's vast and it's real and it's a whole thing. And it also impacts the folks who are in positions to support those students. Um, Cause it creates more work for them. It creates a lot of limitations for those folks um, as they're trying to do this really vital necessary work. Um, if those positions exist at all. There's always someone, right? Whether it's the, the token faculty who isn't really assigned to do this work um, or it's someone who actually has the job description to support LGBTQ students. There's somebody who's getting um, kind of the, the shit end of the stick to say like, we can't give you any more resources even though we have plenty of money or resource to put in other places. So um, that that's another flavor. And I think that we have a, a really nice uh, positionality to be able to challenge and say, you know, we understand what the circumstances were when we were college students and circa, you know, 2021, here's what we still know to be true about how things are not being done right by queer and trans students um, on college campuses. So fix it. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, that's a pretty decent summary of of who we are as an organization and and why we exist and i'm sure we'll continue to tuck into that as we continue to uh in future episodes um and and that being said like i don't think like higher ed specifically is the sole focus of this podcast right so so maybe let's talk a little bit about uh what you the listener can expect uh from take the last bite and, you know, I think that what we are covering is anything and everything related to queer place, space, mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the upcoming topics, Arby? Yeah, so for the first um, batch of uh, Last Bites, we um, are looking at talking into some of the themes that we've already talked about this conversation, right? So we're absolutely going to go hard into a conversation about Midwest nice, because um, even as 
you and I have talked about it here. Um, it is, it is a barrier. It is a thing, right? It shows up as passive aggressiveness. It shows up as conflict evasion, right? It shows up as respectability politics. So, um, we'll have a long form conversation about how folks, um, have experienced Midwest nice, how it might impact how they show up in spaces, um, and what that means for doing organizing or coordinating work. Um, we, uh, as mentioned earlier, Justin and I both turned big old 30, um, this calendar year, not too far apart from each other either. Um, and we were reminiscing on how we were kind of raised or like came into our queerness, kind of being told that turning 30 was queer death. Like just that, like your potentials in your life kind of like, peter out at that that point so we're gonna have a, a broader conversation about like being a queer elder like aging and being queer and we'll also have some insight from one of our team members who um is studying to be a death doula um to talk about like what do we need to think about when we think about like queer elders and um the afterlife right <laughs> um what else we got um you know, I think that we're going to have a, a cool conversation about queerness in rural versus urban settings. Um, so, and I, this, this one speaks to me a lot because mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Chicago and we lived in, you know, Chicago suburbs for a while and then moved to a farm in Southeast Michigan. And so experiencing queerness in a city versus in a rural environment, um, two totally different experiences. Yeah. And then, you know, RB, you mentioned earlier, like small town is different than college town. Mm-hmm. And so we'll tuck, on, tuck, tuck into that conversation a little bit uh, there. And then uh, there's a conversation upcoming uh, with a group of queer brewers. Can you, can yes. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, we've got a human on our team who will, who, um, works in the brewing and brewing industry, beer brewing, um, and other microbrewery related things. And we're going to have, um, this dope conversation about like the service industry and how a lot of folks like post-college or just like in general, um, kind of saturate the service industry and this being one, uh, one example, um, and talking about like the, um, just existence of queer folks who do brewing brewing work um, because of how like dominated is by like cishet white people um, and how that uh, influences um, being able to do that work um, that challenges kind of those norms and conventions. Um, so kind of excited about that one and learning more from some folks who are actually starting uh, an organization that centers queer and trans folks who work in the industry. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot more on the horizon as mm-hmm. we look to, you know, season two and season three and what those look like. So um, all sorts of thoughts floating around Um, But this is going to be Take the Last Bite. This is Take the Last Bite. Um, And we are serving you the last bite on a regular basis. (laughs) Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. 
This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>